Welcome to Web3 with A6 and Z, a show about building the next generation of the internet from the team at A6 and Z Crypto that includes me, your host, Sonal Choksi. Today's episode is relevant to all our listeners and beyond, which is on how to communicate well, especially for crypto, but also for other technical industries or distributed and remote and hybrid workplaces, especially since crypto involves decentralized orgs, which may also apply to the future of work. And it's also really about open source and doing things like community calls to discuss changes, sometimes mixed with newcomers and strangers contributing. So how do you present information to different types of stakeholders, speak spontaneously, and or resolve and recover from conflicts on the spot? I invited our friend Matt Abrams, author of the new just-released book, Think Faster, Talk Smarter, How to Speak Successfully When You're Put on the Spot. He also hosts a popular podcast by a similar name, Think Fast, Talk Smart, which you should also subscribe to. Matt is not only a lecturer at Stanford Business School, but he works with lots of companies and leaders on these topics, including strategic communication, persuasive communication, interpersonal communication, and more. As a reminder, none of the following should be taken as business, legal, investment, or tax advice. Please see a6nc.com slash disclosures for more important info, plus a link to a list of our investments. And finally, while this episode is meant to stand alone, it also continues partly a conversation that Matt and I did on the old show I built, the A6NC podcast, back in November 2020 at the height of the pandemic, when people suddenly shifted to communicating only on Zoom. So that episode covered more formal communication, like how to moderate talks, panels, meetings, as well as nonverbal communication in virtual settings. But in this episode, we focus much more on informal, spontaneous communication, as well as more technical communication. And while we spend most of the time on specific templates, tactics, and tools that anyone can use, we begin the first 10 minutes quickly setting some key context, especially since crypto is not just about code, but it's really about people coordinating with each other at unprecedented scale. It's a very human thing. Matt, welcome. And could you quickly share why this topic matters? First, Sonal, it is such a pleasure to be back with you. And I love the fact that we're going to spend some time having one of our typical conversations, but we're just going <laughs> to let other people in to hear it. Yeah, they get to eavesdrop on it. So as you alluded to, communication is all about connecting and making sure that people are on the same page. I think that's a really appropriate focus to have in crypto. Communication is central to making sure things run efficiently and effectively. And if that's your goal, rather than saying it right, whatever that is, then you're likely to be more successful. And that's why it's so important that people develop some skills and put some focus on it so that they can actually do the good work that they're trying to do and not have to fix the errors, mistakes, and mishaps that result from not communicating. And then the other big unlock from a mindset point of view is many of us see communication as a threat. People are asking us questions, they're leveling objections, they're asking for feedback that is hard for us to give. And we see it as a challenge or a threat. Instead, those are perfect opportunities to connect, to explore. And it's not to say that people aren't actually coming at us with some spice and some concern, but even in those moments, it allows us to further the conversation rather than blocking it. You know what's great about what you said, just to kind of ground it for our listeners even more? I know a top engineering leader in crypto, longtime crypto person who Whenever I see him in sessions, mm -hmm. even when we're in like an impromptu setting where like you have an audience Q&A and you're just asking a speaker a question, before he raises his hand, he'll write his bullet points down on his phone. He'll like organize his thoughts and then do it. And what I really heard about what you said is you're also kind of saying that maybe we can be a little bit more loose and flexible in how we approach 
a conversation because you don't want to have all this bandwidth. I love the analogy of bandwidth because that's another tech native way of thinking about it. Why are you unnecessarily loading this bandwidth that you're actually more focused on organizing it so tightly that you're losing the opportunity to actually really participate? And so that really resonates. And I bring that up, Matt, because your whole thrust of your new book is about spontaneous communication, impromptu communication, how to speak informally. What is the difference relative to, quote, formal communication? So a formal communication to me is a planned pitch presentation meeting with an agenda where you've spent some time in advance really thinking about the detailed content that you want to deliver and perhaps even practice. But if you think about it, most of what we do in our daily life and in the work we do is spontaneous. It happens in the moment. Somebody asks you a question. Somebody asks for feedback. You're making chit chat or small talk at some kind of meetup or mixer, or we make a mistake and we have to fix that faux pas. That's what I mean by spontaneous communication. And I've worked with many crypto leaders actually to help them develop the muscles around this Whereas they might be great at pitching or they can get through some kind of presentation that they might be giving to customers. But when it comes to in the moment responding to objections, that's where things fall apart. And it goes back to this notion of you can still prepare to be spontaneous. And that's a bit ironic, but think of any athletic endeavor you've ever done. You do drills, right? I mean, you dribble the ball around the cones and then in the game, the cones are people and they move and you have to adjust and adapt. So training for spontaneous communication is something that you can do. Yeah. I want to dig in on that for just one more minute of how you can actually add structure to a spontaneous conversation. Mm -hmm. And you use the analogy in your book of jazz, which was probably more resonant for me than sports because I'm not really a sporty person. (laughs) But I also think it really resonates in crypto specifically because when I think of crypto, I do think of it as this really interesting orchestration between innovating under these incredibly hard constraints. Like you have gas fees, you have constraints about scale and speed and performance, and yet you're finding ways to be innovative within that. So that's another example of that beautiful jazz that plays out that you can have these guardrails and then you also have this freedom. And in fact, from a personal point of view, Matt, I'll share this with you because you're a friend, but did you ever read Madeline Langle books when you were growing up? I did. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Do you remember, I think it was Wrinkle in Time, but one of the main characters, the analogy they used was that life is like a sonnet uh-huh. where you have this very strict form, you know, 14 lines and you have iambic pentameter, blah, blah, blah. But then it's up to you to fill in what you say within it, which I thought was a really nice analogy for thinking about this balance between spontaneity and structure. I love it. And it's great that you can take me back to my childhood. But <laughs> but you're right. I mean, jazz musicians learn chord progressions. They learn what sounds good with what. And then in the moment, they create something specific to that. And, and in many ways, I think anybody in the crypto space is doing the same thing. So that's what we mean by spontaneity. Well, let's talk about some of the structures for organizing that you devote in your book, which I love because we're frameworks people here in this world and we love sharing frameworks. A lot of specific frameworks and structures that people can use almost like templates. But before we go to types of structures and templates, I want to ask you quickly about the art of listening. Mm-hmm. Especially since we did not get to cover that in our previous conversations. Yeah. So the more and more I do this work, the more critical I am seeing that the role of listening is. And the reality is this, we listen just enough to get the gist of what somebody is saying 
and look for ways that we can then contribute our responses. We judge, we evaluate, we rehearse. We're not truly listening. And by doing so, we miss out on several things. One, we miss out on connecting. We also might miss out on what's really needed in the moment. Let me give you an example. Imagine, Sono, you and I come out of a meeting and you ask me, you say, hey, Matt, how do you think that went? And I immediately hear, Sono wants feedback. Well, Sono, I thought it went okay, but I really think you could have done this better. We could have done that. But had I really listened to what you were saying, but also how you were saying it, I might have realized that in that moment, you did not want feedback. What you really wanted was support. And by me giving you critical Mm. feedback in that moment, I actually did harm rather than good. I have a colleague at the business school. His name's Collins Dobbs. He teaches crucial communication. And he uses this framework that I asked him if I could borrow to talk about listening. It's pace, space, grace. Not Mm -hmm. only do I like it because it it rhymes, but it really helps us listen better. So pace means slow things down. When we slow down, it really allows us to connect. It allows us to be present. And that's where listening happens. You have to then give yourself some space. And this could be physical space. Move to an environment where you can actually really hear the person. But also mental space. Focus your attention on what's being said, perhaps what's not being said. And then finally is grace. And grace is giving yourself permission to also listen to what's happening inside yourself, your intuition. So if somebody says something and that doesn't feel right, then maybe you ask a follow-up question. You know, if somebody says, oh yeah, things are great. Like that doesn't feel like things are great. Let me follow up and see what's really going on. So pace, space, grace is a way to really look at listening in an active way that allows you to better connect, to better be present, and ultimately to make sure that you're responding in the right way. That's fantastic. You know who's really good at this, Matt, because you know her too, and we we both are fond of her, is our friend Kim. She's yeah. a CMO at Six and Six Crypto, but she's probably one of the best listeners I know. And not in a way that's passive, because there are some listeners where you feel like they just take it in and you're not really looking for a listener. You're just looking for a sponge and they don't really give you any comment. <laughs> it's the exact opposite. It's like a real deep listener. But She's not like a noisy, active listener. It's just like a very calm, present listener. And she really hears like the intent behind the words too. It's quite remarkable, actually. I think Kim is fantastic for many reasons, but her listening is really, really in-depth without being intrusive. And she has the ability of really focusing on what's the crux, what's the key issue being discussed here. And that's a skill you can drill. You know, I encourage my students to listen to a podcast like this one and pause it and then think to yourself, what's the bottom line here? What's the key issue or topic that's being discussed? And if you drill that and train your brain to really look for that as you're listening, it becomes second nature. So you can do what Kim does. And I actually think you're very good at this too, of coming down to what the essence is. That's something we can all develop. I'm only good at it in these settings, Matt. I'm terrible in meetings. And I want to come back to that impromptu context. But what is some advice you might give about listening that's specific to with CEOs and leaders, mm-hmm. with engineering and technical groups, and then with like marketing comms community. I mean, there's obviously these universals, but just based on your work with all yeah. these different types of people, what would be some advice you might give to Taylor listening in those settings? This is such an awesome question. I want everybody to hear the question that Sonal just asked. <laughs> she just asked, how do you listen differently based on the audience that you are listening to. We so often, if we think about it at all, we think about how do you change your message when you are speaking or writing? This is a very different question. There's a a, a wonderful 
thinker and communicator about listening. His name is Julian Treasure. I love his line. He says, what is the listening that you are speaking into? And that's mm. a fantastic way to look at this. And your question gets at that. So let me answer the question. I like how you said it, but yeah, tell me more. So if you're speaking to senior leaders, a CEO, executives, you need to be thinking about when they're listening, they're listening from a very active point of view. They're looking for what is it that I can do to help in this circumstance? What are the things that I need to be concerned with? What are the priorities that I need to be coming away with or providing as a result of what I'm hearing? And if that's what somebody is listening for, the priorities, how they can actually act on or decisions to be made, you need to tee that up as you're communicating into that. So you might come in and say, I have three fundamental questions that I would like for us to answer in this interaction, because you're setting them up for what they're listening for, right? If you come in with just a litany of challenges and issues, you're not helping them. You're making them do hard work to figure out what are the decisions to be made yes. and what are the priorities to find. So with leaders, that's something to focus on. With engineers and people who are building things, scientists, people who are in the trenches, you need to be thinking about their mindset. And I hate to stereotype, but Often engineers, scientists like to solve problems. So can you tee up your information in a way that's presenting the problems and choices as you see it so they can more easily digest it and then respond? And then finally, if you're talking to sales, marketing, HR, they often are interested in opportunities. What's the potential here? So can I frame what I'm saying in terms of choices of potential and possibility and that will help them, again, listen in a way that's congruent to what they're listening for. So you're absolutely right. We need to be thinking about how people are listening and what they're listening for and adjust our communication accordingly. I was amazed you answered that so quickly, Matt. I thought you were about to ask me for more time to think about your answer, and you just had an answer. <laughs> I, I do this work a little bit, Sonal. Yeah, you do, a, you do a little bit of it. Okay, let's just go into the specifics now, like real concrete, tactical specifics and structures. So what are some of the best organizing structures that you've seen? If you're talking to X, you can do Y. If you're talking to Z, you can do A, like so on and so forth. Well, let me start by saying what I mean by a structure. To me, a structure is nothing more than a logical connection of ideas. Many of us, when we communicate, we just list out information. We just provide a list. And lists are not very useful because our brains are literally not wired for lists. Yeah. Our brains are wired for story, for logical connection among ideas. And so there are many structures that you can use. The one that most of us are most familiar with mm -hmm. is if you're trying to convince people of something is problem, solution, benefit. There's an issue, a challenge. I'll describe it. I then explain how we believe we can address or fix it. And then here are the benefits by taking this approach. Problem, solution, benefit. That's a good logical structure. If anybody has ever pitched or persuaded, you've probably used some version of that. Similarly, if you're having a discussion about a decision that needs to be made, you can use comparison, contrast, conclusion. Here are two choices. Here's how they're similar. Here are the very same choices, but here's how they're different. And here's the conclusion that I have. One of the biggest challenges we have, and you laid out a lot of the challenges that those in crypto have, being hybrid, being in teams that are, are spread out all over the place, having to leverage different types of technology. One of the big challenges we have is we're being bombarded with so much information. If you're not concise and clear, it's hard for people to digest what you're saying. So structure helps you package up information for the audience in a way that they can consume it, remember it, and hopefully act on it. 
Oh my God. I just realized like I've worked with you over the years, mostly for live stage events, but I've never worked with you on this because I was just thinking to myself how I'm good at that when it comes to writing and editing in mm -hmm. podcasts or written form. But when it comes to live talking, I'm terrible at structure. And I've heard from a million people that when I write in slacks and emails and unstructured communications, like live meetings where I have to answer things impromptu, I'm terrible at providing that concision. I'm just very bad at it. And I'm just only mentioning this because if a quote seasoned speaker like me struggles, I can't imagine how other people must feel all the time. Oh, absolutely. I call this the F word of communication. And it's not that naughty one. It's focus and fidelity. Many of us in spontaneous speaking situations are figuring out what we want to say as we're saying it. And yes. so we end up saying a lot more than we mean to. Yes, that's exactly what happens. So Think of a structure as a recipe. If you have a recipe, you are likely to make a better meal than if you're just throwing something together. It doesn't mean that you're going to say the same thing every time. Just like if you and I cook the same dish from the same recipe, it's not going to come out the same way. But we have a better chance of having success for having had that recipe. You know, my mother has this saying, I know she didn't create it, but her saying is, tell me the time, don't build me the clock. You know, I've worked with a ton of people in crypto. People start building clocks almost from the get-go, yes. right? And you can get lost if you don't know the time first. And if people are interested in how you built the clock, they'll ask, and then you can go into that detail. So start from a structured place first. That's great. Yes. Focus is the word. And what's the other one? Fidelity? Fidelity, accuracy. You know, when we communicate, we assume that everybody knows what we're talking about, and that's not the case. Crypto is rampant with acronyms and jargon. So fidelity is all about accuracy and clarity of what I'm communicating. We need to strive for clarity, which means checking our jargon, checking our acronyms to make sure that the audience understands. I want to push back on that, though, and add a caveat, which is, I agree in general, because I used to have these religious debates all the time with people in the content world around like, oh, I don't want to quote, dumb it down. And I'm like, you're not, you're not taking anything away. It's an additive thing. You're bringing people along. I talk about this in all my talks. However, in crypto in particular, I've been in this space for a very long time. There is an insider jargon that matters and that actually is a way to signal to your tribe. And in fact, it's also a way to sometimes ensure your conversation is meant to be, quote, nerd snipey, like you're having a conversation to bring more people of a similar ilk to that group. And so in those cases, that jargon, that lingo, that matters. So if you make a conscious choice to use terminology, acronyms, jargon, to signal we versus them, or I'm part of you, or to draw people in, great. But that's a strategic choice. Here's the problem. Most people I work with in the crypto space and elsewhere do it out of habit, and they do so at an inappropriate time for their audience, and it can work against you. So I have no problem as long as it's strategic. Yeah. Well, on that note, one line that really jumped out in your book, and this is a great point to probe you on it, was avoid the default response. Yeah. And that was a really interesting line because you meant it, I think, in the context of corporate tease and jargon. But can you say more about that? Because I think that's also something that we contend with in this industry. So let me start at the highest levels. Many of us rely on heuristics, a typical response when it comes to communication. One is it is what it is. Oh, yeah. <laughs> The only way to get through sometimes in crypto. Sometimes. Right, right, right. You got to right. say that. But these little sayings actually 
preclude us from connecting. We think we are expressing empathy, but we're not. We're actually building distance. It fulfills the obligation to demonstrate, I heard you, but it doesn't really add much. It doesn't move the conversation along, and it certainly doesn't lead to creativity and collaboration the way that a specific engaged response can. So I challenge everybody when you're in a spontaneous speaking situation to see what comes up and then ask yourself, is this the most effective way to accomplish whatever the goal is I have in this moment? And maybe it is, but at least question it so you don't go farther. By the way, what's the worst thing that happens if you say nothing? That yeah. actually leaves more room. Yeah. And it empowers the other person to say more. You know, I take a lot from the world of improv and I've learned from great masters, yeah. my co-teacher, Adam Tobin, and somebody else I work with, Dan Klein. They've taught me so much about improv. There's a saying in improv I love. It's don't just do something, stand there. What? That's interesting. In other words, sometimes the most important thing you can do is be quiet. You know, it strikes me that this technique would work particularly well in settings with mixed groups like strangers. Well, so let me just echo the importance of leaving that space, especially when you're in a hybrid setting where there are people in a room who can actually yeah. have that engaged interaction and the right. other people who are remote yep. don't have that opportunity. So leaving the silence or actually purposely engaging those folks allows you to hear really important ideas and voices that we might not hear. I interviewed a woman who also teaches at Stanford, Deborah Schifrin. She was a former NPR reporter, and she said her secret superpower when doing interviews was the silent pause. And in that pause, one, because it was awkward, people would say more, or two, because they felt like, hey, I really have the floor and somebody really is concerned with what I'm saying. So sometimes pausing, sometimes asking a clarifying question, sometimes paraphrasing, all of those are tools to make sure you're responding in an appropriate way, that is addressing the issue at hand. And these default first response, knee-jerk reactions get in the way of that. Yeah. The other question I am often asked is, how do I insert myself into a conversation that's going on. Because here's what most people tell me is they want to say something, but nobody gives them space to say something. And then the train has left the station. And by the time the floor comes to them, the topic has now moved away. Yes. Yes. That happens a ton in crypto. Yes. Keep going. So let me give three suggestions on how you do it. If you need to wedge your idea into a conversation that's flowing and going, and you really yeah. want to put your point out there, First, lead with a question. So you could say, how could we do that? Or what are the consequences of if we do? Leading with a question gives you permission to assert yourself because it's relevant to what's being said. That's number That's right. one. Lead with it's a question. It's anchored there. Yep. Exactly. The second is to lead with an emotion. I'm excited about that or I'm concerned about that. The emotion gives you permission to speak up at that moment. And then finally, a paraphrase. So you extract something that people said and then comment on it. So it's questioning. It's leading with an emotion. It's paraphrasing. Those are the politest ways I know to wedge yourself into a communication. That's fantastic. You know, I have a concrete example here, which you sure. should listen to if you're interested in this, which is Tim Biko of Ethereum Foundation. We've had him on the podcast to talk about the process of the merge, the backstory of the Ethereum merge and more. But he runs these all core developers calls and they're just like really good. What you have is this very deep, passionate points of view, multiple stakeholders. That's the whole model of Ethereum. Like it's a multi-client, very diverse kind of ecosystem. It's just amazing to hear like a lot of these practices you're talking about. I don't know if he's ever got any training or if it's just intuitive to him, because I imagine some people are just good at that. But yeah, that'd be a good example to listen to is listen to those Ethereum all-core developers 
calls and our episode with Tim Baiko for a little bit more context on that. I appreciate you highlighting that point. I think it's really important to seek out good examples of communication and really spend some time reflecting on what the people are doing or not doing that make it good. One of the mindset shifts I recommend people consider is what are the standards by which you are evaluating your communication? I have so many people who say, well, you know, there's that TED Talk or Steve Jobs. And all of those are planned, practiced, prepared, coached. If you're applying that as success, when you're speaking in the moment, answering a question, fixing a mistake, is the wrong rubric. You're making yourself feel bad when, in fact, you could be improving if you were to see some of these real-world examples as you're pointing out. Well, I also want to highlight your point back. What's great about that is you find the people that you want to be like. You're not trying to be someone you're not. But that doesn't mean we can't learn and get better. From other people. Absolutely. That's very helpful. Okay, why don't we continue talking about, let's go back to the framework. Okay. So you shared problem, solution, benefit, where you evoke an issue, offer a solution, and end by discussing the benefit that your, quote, solution will confer. That's what you have in your book. It's very common. People use it in pitches. I want to mention that that's also what people use when they're recruiting candidates or like someone who has a career crisis or they're trying to think about their next move, which is especially true for senior Candidates, it's also very true for sales, just selling a product, selling an idea. So I think that's a good example of that framework. I don't know if you have any other examples you might say on that one. You know, trying to convince people to support your effort that you have, uh, getting people to consider alternative points of view for decisions that have to be made. Okay. Then the other one you mentioned already was comparison, contrast, conclusion. You know, begin by reflecting on the similarities and the differences, wrapping up your speech by coming to a conclusion. It's funny, you didn't mention this, and I don't think you should because you're not as deeply immersed in crypto. For me, the example that resonates with the crypto world, the conversation happening all the time with builders around what chain they're going to build on Mm -hmm. and how they make their choice of chain, which is a topic we've covered on this podcast. And It's really fascinating because there's not a clear right answer, the only answer, this one answer. It really depends on so many factors, timing, consideration of where things will be, the ecosystem. And when I hear those conversations, I actually wonder if more people did this simple classic essay from high school, compare, contrast, conclude. It would make their conversations go so much more smoothly. I completely agree. And even though it's something that many of us learned a long time ago, there's a reason we learned it. This goes way back to the ancient Greeks, you know, in terms of argumentation. So so it's got some legs. And because of that, I think we should consider it. But there are lots of structures that can help you. The two that we mentioned, I think, are great. There are many other structures that are helpful. You know, my favorite structure in the whole world, and we did talk about this before, it's three simple questions. What So what? Now what? Imagine you're a crypto developer and you have to give an update to people on a particular feature you're adding or considering adding. The what is the feature, the so what is why it's important and relevant, and the now what is the decision that has to be made or the advantages of implementing it or showing somebody a demonstration. So it's a way of packaging things up very quickly and concisely. What, so what, now what? Think about emails. I get emails all the time that are very complex. I'm trying to figure out what does the person want? If they were to structure it using what, so what, now what, it would be much more helpful. So imagine the subject line is the now what. It's what they're asking me to do. And then the body of the email is the what they're describing, what it is they're talking about. And then the so what, why it's important to me. 
that helps. That does. You can also use this structure to give feedback. For me, it helps me think very quickly on how to respond. And for you, it packages it up in a nice way for you to remember it so you can act on it. So when we come out of a meeting and you really do want feedback from me, the what is my feedback? I might say, you know, Sonal, in the meeting, you did a great job, except when you talked about the implementation plan, you didn't give as much detail as you did in the other parts and you spoke quickly. That's my what. The so what would be, and when you speak quickly without detail, people might think you're not as prepared as you should be. That's the so what. And then the now what would be is next time, slow down. And I want you to include example A and example B in the implementation plan. That's the now what. So it's a structure that can be used in many, many different ways. I love that. And of course, I've heard you talk about that many times for good reason, because it's a very powerful framework. What I've always loved about it, and this is always my pet peeve when it comes to written communication, you'd be amazed, Matt, at how many forget this. It drives me insane. Maybe they're too close to the subject matter, et cetera. They always miss the why it matters. And what I love about your framework is it gets right to why it matters. So what is another way of saying why it matters, basically? That's right. And I don't want to get too academic-y here, but we have known for, for decades that if you make a message relevant and salient to the people you're talking to, they will pay more attention to it. They are more likely to remember it and they're more likely to act on it. So you really have to focus on what's relevant and important to them. And this structure really bakes it in. Yeah. And I'm going to keep going because this is such an important one. I think is worth really diving a little deeper on. The now what is also critical in crypto, I would argue, because a lot of the hand-waving criticism that people get isn't deserved, I think, but sometimes it's a mismatch in styles of communication and people not communicating in these best practices and ways that you're sharing. So for instance, a great idea, but literally no idea, not only why it matters, but actually what are really the practical implications or how to concretely tie it to like what's happening now. I mean, just give you a concrete example. Like whenever we talk about zero knowledge, we always make sure that we talk about this topic at zero knowledge. This is what it is. Here's why it matters. It's actually a big thing. It means more, but that actually has all these practical implications that imply to this, 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 and this. And I think that's a very good frame. More people should do that because we do lose our way somewhere. And this is a very yeah. simple kind of three-act play to keep things moving. And actually, just sorry to keep pounding this one more time, the analogy of the bandwidth applies here too, because yeah. when I think about the additional friction, like actually in edits, I call this making the reader make too many inferential leaps. Yeah, You're making them do the work in between the logic and the points you're making when you should really be the one making those as quickly and efficiently for them as possible so that they can free their mind to absorb the big idea, the exciting things, the things that they can do with this idea versus just trying to make sense of it. You are so right. We make life hard for our listeners, for our readers, which works against us. Now, I want to be very clear. You don't dumb things down. It's not about simplifying. It's about making things accessible. And I think this is where crypto really needs to focus because a lot of what goes on when you're talking to people who aren't immersed in the field it can be very complex. So lots of things you can do. You can deconstruct it. You can break it down. You can diagram yeah. it. You can use analogies and metaphors. These are the ways you make something accessible without dumbing it down. I will do you one better and throw a line from your book back at you. I love this line that you have, which is never lose your tour group. Yeah. <laughs> and I think, I think you were a tour guide at one point. I was. So in college, I was desperate for money and it was the highest paying job I could get. And 
they trained us literally for three months. It was very militaristic. Wow. Yeah. I can still to this day sort of walk backwards in a straight line because of that training and talk <laughs> at the same time. But they said the most important thing is never lose your tour group. You're a bad tour guide if you get people lost. And the same is true in our communication. It's so easy to get people lost and we have to keep them together. How do we do that? We provide a structure. We make it relevant for them. We make sure they understand our language and the terminology we're using. We make things accessible. You know, so many of us set as a goal for success of our communication just to get through it. Like the goal is just to get the information out there. And if that's your goal, you're going to fail because it means people aren't digesting it. They aren't processing it. They're not likely to act on it. So you end up having to clean up the mess. I would much rather the goal be that people actually learn from you. They understand, they take the information in so that you can get collaborative. And actually, Matt, I don't know if you remember in our last conversation, we talked a lot about the usefulness of like a nav and how when you have like a yeah. navigation system and someone's sharing directions, it's more frustrating for someone to be told, turn right, turn left, without actually saying in about three streets, you're going to turn right. You're going to look up ahead. We're going to make this corner because that actually reduces people's anxiety, but it also gives them a little bit of an overview. And I remember yes. sharing, because I use this too editorially, I always describe it as a map in the terrain paragraph where you're orienting your reader into the map and the terrain of the space. So yes. they actually know how your point fits into the broader Yes. Landscape. And I think that also applies very strongly to your tour group analogy. Oh, absolutely. I interviewed for the book a woman who is in editorial for the Dummies book series. Many of folks oh, are familiar cool. with that. Oh, cool. Yeah. The cool thing about the Dummies books is there are lots of different ways to get the material. They do a great job, I think, of people finding their way through their books. And she calls it wayfinding. You know, if you're a hiker or a mountaineer, part of what we have to do is people who set up our communication is we have to make it easy for the audience to find their way through our material. And one of the biggest things we need to do is we need to connect the ideas together. As a former tour guide, the place you lose people the most is when you move from one place to the next. They literally wander off. The same is true in our messaging. If you don't connect where you've been to where you're going, people get uncomfortable. They get curious and leave. So this bridging and transitioning is so important. So often if we do anything, we'll say, so, next, second, but that doesn't logically connect the ideas. And structure, one of the benefits of structure is the structure builds in a connection. If I talk about the problem, I can easily connect the solution to the problem and keep you with me. Yes. So the wayfinding you're talking about, really, really important. Yeah, I love what you just said there, though, about the structure builds it in, because what you're saying is that it actually is inherent where one cue yeah. leads to the next because they're logically linked. I finally understand, Matt, now why you said earlier that a list is not a structure. I totally get it. Because at first I was like, of course it's a structure, pro-con, blah, 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 it has logic to it. But actually they don't connect to each other. They're at the end of the day, arbitrary groupings. You got it. Thank you. Ding, ding, ding. And I'm going <laughs> to have to make sure I explain that better. I, I'm sorry you were confused. I mean, I get it. It's just that I'm a list maker and I love lists and I'm a big believer in the checklist manifesto and oh, yeah. having lists and launch lists. Lists are very powerful tools. Exactly. But all those examples you just gave are examples for yourself. When I yes. am trying to communicate information to another person, giving a list of information is not as helpful. It's fascinating, by the way, because on another podcast I did back in the day with Annie Duke, the famous poker player, and she also does a lot of decision-making uh -huh. work, and she wrote a book on how to decide. One of her biggest takeaways is a list is the absolute worst way to make decisions, too. Yeah, and I can it's see really that. fascinating. Yeah. Okay, so going back now to more structures, you have like a whole section in the book, like a whole chapter devoted to it. So we just talked about what, so what, now what. 
we talked earlier about comparison, contrast, conclusion. We've already talked about problem, solution, benefit. You also have on this list point, reason, example, point. Can you share that structure? Yeah. So prep is you make a point, you give a rationale or reason for that point, you give an example, and then you remind people of the point. So if I am in the midst of a discussion, a debate, this is a way of really reinforcing the point that I'm making. We often assert points or perspective without supporting it. And you've actually asked me to do this a few times today where you've asked for clarification or an example, because examples really light things up. But an example without a connection, that is a reason, the why behind the what, if you will, can lay flat. So the example helps us to understand, the reason helps us to remember. And then repetition is always important. So point, reason, example, point is a really good structure when you're having an in-the-moment conversation, debate, or discussion to help you really drive home the points without, again, it being a list. Because I can just list my points, but that's not helpful. But if I follow prep, then it can help me make those points really stick with the people I'm talking to. Great. Two more really quick. Yeah. You use the example how in the legal world, there's a structure that's IRAC, IRAC that goes issue, rule, apply, conclude. Can you talk about that one? And I bring it up, Matt, because a lot of crypto people are actually rooted in legal or they're dealing with legal and they're often talking about issues resolution, just given the context, the environment, regulatory even. Yeah. So IRAC, again, issue, and then you give the rule, that's the legal rule, and then how it's applied, and then give your conclusion. So you want to define the issue so everybody's clear on what it is you're talking about. You then apply whatever rule, precedent, law that applies to it. And then you want to talk about how has this been applied in the real world? You know, a lot of the rules and the law themselves, the precedent, are separate from the how they're applied. So you talk about, yeah. in this case, this is how it's applied. And then you come up with some kind of conclusion that, again, repeats what initially started it in the first place, which is the issue at hand. So it's a derivative of prep, if you will. Yeah. Prep as in point, reason, example, point. Yeah. Keep going. Exactly. Essentially serving the same purpose. Got it. And when are the cases when you see people using this example? Like, where do you see this happening in our world? So I see it in high tech all the time. When high functioning engineering teams are discussing and debating ways to do things, if you can make your point. If you can explain your reason for your point and then give an example of what it might look like and come back to your point, it's a really nice way to package up a discussion or a debate. I see this all the time in stand-ups. I see this in strategic planning, but it really, it doesn't mean people are going to agree with you, but it certainly means that people understand your perspective better. Yeah, certainly better than arguing on emotion and attachment, which is not the way to win, convert people, persuade them, et cetera. Again, I'm a seasoned communicator, but I actually struggle with this stuff. I'm very passionate, but also because I have to tell people sometimes like, hey, we're in brainstorm mode. And when we're in brainstorm mode, I like it to be a little messy and nonlinear and all over the place. But then when you're actually in a mode where you're trying to move to a conclusion, it doesn't do any benefit to conflate those two modes. Although that does lead me to a question related to this, which is, is there room to inject emotion in all this? Like, is this like talking clinically? No, certainly. I've worked with many crypto companies and a lot of the time when I'm coaching them on their pitches and other things, I ask them, what's the emotion you're trying to touch here? And some are talking about excitement or confidence or insecurity. Sometimes it's a burning platform. If we don't do this, we'll be in trouble. So emotion can factor into these structures very easily. So take problem, solution, benefit. We've talked about that several times. If I can make the problem emotional for you, 
So you experience an emotion. You feel frustration, concern, excitement at the possible resolving of it. Then you're going to pay attention in a very different way, and you're going to remember it in a very different way. When I use what, so what, now what, the so what can be laden with lots of emotion. This is important because this is our cause, or this is changing information. It's a passion that infects people. It's a movement. Yeah. Yeah. You know, a great example of emotion being used, I saw many years ago from Brian Armstrong, founder of Coinbase. He does a great job of his conviction of why crypto is so important in the financial space. He talks about the liberation that can come through currencies like Bitcoin, et cetera, to really help those who don't have access to financial markets like some of us who do, who live in the United States and elsewhere. So emotion can certainly play out in the discussion and in the structures that you use. Great. One last one, by the way, you should print up cards on this because having this as a little cheat sheet, but what about situation, task, action, result, star? So Of all the structures, when I ask people about a structure that they use commonly, situation task analysis results, the STAR method comes up very, very frequently. It is one that I think is taught in universities for interviewing and answering questions or for giving updates. You define the situation that you're addressing or the answer that you're giving, the tasks that took place or need to take place. You analyze the success or or the details of what happened, and then you talk about the results. It's a very nice way of packaging up and summarizing information. It's not one of my favorites personally because it just doesn't feel comfortable for me, but you got to find what works for you. I'm a what, so what, now what guy. Yeah, And that's great for me. But situation task analysis results, to me, it's a little rigid and frigid. It doesn't have a a lot of conversational tone. I was about to say, it doesn't have like an emotional heft to it either. I mean, bluntly, Matt, I love that you published one of your articles in HBR. I'm a huge fan of one of the editors there and some of the articles that like my colleague Scott Commoners writes there all the time. I'm a huge fan. I do get frustrated with what I call HBR speak in meetings when you have like these people that talk like business. And it's a little like, just talk like a real person. (laughs) And I think that last one seems to lend itself a little bit too much to a little clinical analysis versus like just human connection and talk like what, so what, now what? But I'm all about having a toolkit. And there are certain situations where I think that one works really well. You want the right tool for the right situation. So I think it's appropriate for people to know it and then find what works for them. Can you think of an example where people would use it in crypto or tech more broadly? I think when people do project or program reviews and they're talking about challenges they're dealing with, it's a great tool. And I've seen people use it less of an update and more of a, hey, here's an issue we're dealing with and here's Mm -hmm. the status of that issue. Great. Okay. So now I'm going to ask you about one of my favorite structures and which you actually referenced in your book as one of the simplest ones, which is the most basic storytelling of beginning, middle and end. I hate the word storytelling, Matt. I really do. (laughs) Because I hate when people reference storytelling. Let's do more storytelling. I don't think it's a useful word. It's become meaningless. It's genericized. Like, God, everything's a story. Like, what does that even mean? So I think there's usefulness in this idea of story, just because if I say, tell a story, you at least think like, oh yeah, there has to be some kind of logic and flow. It's not just random. Most stories also have some kind of emotional component. But I get what you're saying. I mean, everything is now about storytelling, so much so that there's an anti-storytelling movement. It's been used too much. (laughs) But when you think about beginning, middle, and end, that invites, oh, I have to start somewhere so my audience understands, and then I have to end somewhere. So I do think this notion of beginning, middle, end 
is really useful. And, and it also invites mm -hmm. us to frame things in certain ways. Let me give you an example. Yeah. Problem, solution, benefit. We've talked a lot about that. I can start with the problem, but I could also start with the benefit. So this makes me think, what's the most effective way to start? What's the best beginning for this audience? If I have a highly resistant audience, for example, they're yeah. hesitant, they're concerned, it might be in my benefit to start with the benefits, get them to buy into what I'm trying to achieve. Like I could say, wouldn't it be great if we could do this more efficiently? And everybody's like, yes. And then I go, well, here's the problem in the way. So by thinking I need to have a beginning, middle and end that invites me to think about where do I start nice. and then how do I end? Especially because if you take another example, like an audience that's bought in, yeah. like in crypto, we talk a lot about the problem so that you can move the narrative forward because they're already yeah. bought in. And then you can spend a little less time on the benefit. Like, well, yeah. this is the result we get, but now let's actually talk about what we need to do to get there. That's great, Matt. That was a great answer. Well, thank Very you. Very thoughtful. I mean, you do know your shit. <laughs> well, thank, I, I, that means a lot coming from you. <laughs> Those things can have a generic feel to them. Yes. But you did it in a way that made it so immediately like, no, it's not generic. Here's why it matters. And here's what you can actually do with it. Well, By the way, you. as fellow podcasters, I will say this because this is something I talk a ton about when I used to train people into podcasting or yeah. how to think about host interview driven shows and conversations. A lot of people think like a Holloway style conversation that you just put people in a room, record, and it's great. But guess what? As you know, and I know, but not everyone knows who doesn't produce these, 99.9% .9 of the time, the best way to have a conversation is to actually have like, even if you don't have a loose arc in mind at the outset, yeah. you can create one in post-production. That's right. But I always tell people you need a simple beginning, a simple middle, and a simple end. Yes. That's it. And I often spend most of my edits on written or audio form thinking about the beginning and ending and how it kind yes. of carves out of the material. You are so 100% right. I'm doing so many podcast interviews for the book. And I will have done 50 podcast interviews by the time the book comes out. Oh, you're going to write an article about what you've learned? Yeah, exactly. I'm going to write a podcast host view of being a guest on 50 podcasts. That's fantastic. I can't wait to hear. I am learning so much. I mean, you are, and I'm not blowing smoke. You are a master of your craft. Thank you. Okay. So a good note to wrap up on is a tour of some of the tricky issues that people may have to deal with. You can answer these lightning round style if you like, but I'm going to just go down a list literally. We talked about this already, but just want to call it out a little bit more, which is mixed environments, which is so common in distributed yeah. workplace. You have hybrid workplaces where some people are in person, some people are remote. Let's talk about all the nuances you might share for that one really quick. So a few things I'd like people to think about, and I'm going to get very tactical here. I love tactics. Go to town. The meeting invites that you set up for hybrid meetings or, or virtual meetings, people don't leverage them as effectively as they can. So what can you do to bring a sense of camaraderie, community in your invite? Well, what you mm. call it, the name of the meeting can do it. Give everybody as part of the meeting invite, not just the URL that you log into the meeting for, but give them a task, ask a question, present a challenge, and then start with yeah. that. So people come to it knowing that they're going to collaborate. I have a very simple rule. Start wherever there are fewer people. So if I'm in a room and there are five of us and we've got two people remote, I will always start with the people who are remote to remind everybody they're there. Oh, I love that. And make them feel connected. So wherever there are fewer people, start there to bring them in, to remind everybody that they're connected. Try to position, if you're hybrid, the cameras so everybody can see. 
a question you might ask yourself is, do you want to use tools like chat, for example, if only some people have access to that, you know, only the remote people do, maybe you disable it. That's such a good point. I've seen this all the time. Right. So there are very tactical things you can do to make it feel more inclusive of people. And sometimes, you know, what I would do is if I am the leader and this is a reoccurring meeting and I physically sit with, let's say, those same five people, and I know they're always too remote, maybe every other meeting, I actually take it remote, even though the other four people are in the room. So I have that experience, and I'm connected to those people who are more remote. So there are things that we can do to make it feel more inclusive that we really need to do, because that allows the communication to flow better, to be more genuine, and have everybody feel like they're part of it. And I think just asking questions of the people who have not communicated. So if you're having a good discussion with those in the room, take a moment to make sure you include those who are remote. Similarly, if it's coming from those remote, pull the people in who are in the room. It's really being an air traffic controller or perhaps orchestra conductor is the better analogy of just bringing in the right voices at the right time. What do you do when there isn't a clear leader or facilitator in the meeting? And you're kind of doing this in a very organic, impromptu, informal way. Like, how do you sort of manage that without looking like you're taking over? This can be the case with a lot of like decentralized orgs yeah. where, I mean, they do have leaders, but they're just like many leaders versus one central leader. But sometimes it can be a little chaotic seeming. So do you have any thoughts on that case? The chaos can bring creativity. So I certainly don't want to dampen that. But you also want some momentum towards a goal and make yeah. sure that there's focus. Yeah. Here again is where I would really rely on paraphrasing. Paraphrasing is a soft way to take leadership. You're not saying we must move on, but you're saying, you know, Sonal, I heard you say this. And I also heard Jim say that. And I'm seeing that we're coalescing around this point. What do you all think? So I'm using paraphrasing to highlight and then I ask a question rather than provide direction. And that can keep things moving without it feeling like I'm dictating what needs to come and what needs to happen. Yeah. By the way, we often say in crypto that this is a future of work. And whether you agree or not, over time, we are going to be living in this world more and more. I know a lot of people went back to in person after the pandemic. Some people stayed remote. But I do think this is a very important skill. So I'm really glad you shared those tactics, Matt. It seems so obvious when you hear them, but actually when you listen to them, like who actually does those things? Absolutely. Those same skills can help you in these hybrid world or also the situations you describe where there's no clear leader and people are just being very creative and brainstorming. Now, how about the case, and this is very common in crypto, probably more than any other industry, because the whole theme is decentralization, decentralized organizations, trust without having a central intermediary permission list, et cetera. Strangers combined with familiars. I remember that we talked about that a ton on Clubhouse a lot. Yeah. Because that's a case where you had a very organic group that would come together. It's not all private rooms, public. Right. People would join. People would come up to the stage. People would come in at different times, which happens sometimes in these group community calls in open source and other communities. Like, how do you deal with this unique world we're in where oftentimes we have parasocial connections, we have close connections, intimate connections, and then you have like strangers you're interacting with, especially again in the case of open source and people around the world you may never have even met. Really tough because you want to honor those relationships that you have, the people you're close with, but at the same time, you don't want to exclude others. So I think part of it is awareness in this conversation, in this meeting, there are people who are very close and there are people who aren't familiar with each other at all. And so I need to bridge those gaps. So 
Think of yourself in those circumstances almost as a translator. If you have some connection, like you and I have many years of a connection and we can we can cut to the chase very quickly. In some ways, we can almost finish each other's sentences because we've had these conversations before, but that excludes others who don't have that. So as part yeah. of what I would do, and you do a great job of this in terms of interviewing, when we have one of those moments, you'll then take a step back and give a little bit of background or a little bit of a bridge to people who might not be privy to that. And I think we all need to take that in into account. We have to focus on ways to invite people into those conversations. So again, asking questions. These can even be rhetorical questions where we just get people thinking that we want them to be part of this conversation to invite them in. And that's really what communication is all about. It's about connecting, making common. That's literally what communication means, to make common. And so we can use communication to do that. I love that. And thank you for that compliment. And it's funny, I hear it a lot, but I never saw it in myself. I think it's because I feel like I'm a traveler across multiple worlds. And I always feel that no matter what industry I'm in. It's funny when you said Wayfinder earlier with the women yeah. who did the dummies books. For yeah. me, it's like world traveler, yeah. world yeah. traverser. I always feel that. On the flip side, though, I'll tell you that it's funny because there are people that meet me and they're like, mm, you're not so much like your podcast self. Or I have people in my life who will actually tell me, I wish you were more like your podcast self. So I think that's kind of funny. <laughs> you know, the thing that people <laughs> tell me the most when they meet me, they're all like, you look much older than you sound. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> I get that all the time. And then when we were in Zoom world, everybody's like, you're much shorter than I thought. So I get physical things. You get metaphysical things. Oh, man. I'll take it. Yeah, I'll take yeah. that. Okay. So here's another tricky situation. You actually already shared feedback, but like how to apologize and recover in a conversation when it's not going the way you want. Apologies are tricky. And I think it's really important that we apologize quickly. I have a structure I like, AAA. You know, here in the United States, the AAA is if your car breaks down, they come and help you fix <laughs> yeah. it. And I think AAA can help you fix these potentially fraught situations. So the structure is this. You acknowledge what it is that you did or did not do that was offensive. You then appreciate how that might have made the person feel or the people feel. And then you explain the amends that you will make in the future. So acknowledge, appreciate amends. Many of us, if we apologize at all, we'll say things like, I'm sorry I made you feel bad. Well, that's not an apology for the action. That's an apology that might have resulted in how the person felt. And in fact, you make it worse because it's making it about them and not actually like hearing them. Exactly. That's terrible. Exactly. So I might say something like, I apologize that I cut you off in our conversation. I know that if I cut you off, that might make you feel as if I don't respect your contribution. In the future, not only will I let you finish, but I'm going to paraphrase what you say before I add my contribution. So I acknowledge what I did. I appreciate how that might have made you feel. And then I explain very specifically what I intend to do in the future to remedy this situation and prevent it from happening again. So AAA, acknowledge, appreciate, amends can really help. You know, we were talking about the framing of spontaneous and impromptu communication and generally about speaking informally, not like formal presentations. When do you think this kind of thing should happen? You said it should happen quickly, but should it happen in the moment of like that meeting? I wish I could say always do this or never do this. You have to ascertain what's going on in the moment. Yeah. So if we're in a critical conversation, there are lots of us in the room and the momentum is moving forward, I may not immediately do the apology, but I might yeah. do it really soon after. There is something to be said about a public apology. So if, if I cut you off in a group, in a meeting, 
it makes sense for me to apologize publicly, you know, to have the infraction happen publicly, but the apology take place privately, I think is in some ways wimping out a bit. Now, yeah. similarly, I don't want to make it awkward for you, right? Because if I apologize yes. publicly, then you're in this really awkward position. So I have to make a in the moment decision, what I think is best for you and for the team or what, whoever else is around. You know, I guess the guiding principle would be, how is it going to make the person that was offended feel? And how much negative impact will it have on the momentum in the moment of the, yeah, of yeah, the room? Exactly. And, and then make that decision. So if you say, yeah, that really did piss me off and I hope it doesn't happen again, then I might ask you, you know, when this meeting reconvenes, I'm actually going to say something publicly because I really do feel bad and then give you the choice if I do it or not. So yeah. there are lots of ways to play that. I like that, especially because what you just said, there's implied in there that you can avoid the performative aspect of that, which is also a danger in this day and age. Yes. All right. Last one, how to handle a confrontation. And what I mean is when you have someone in a group who's like on the opposite side of you, kind of adversarially positioned, any thoughts or advice? So I think what's really important in that is to look for common ground. I talk about in the mindset chapter, this notion of yes and, which comes from improvisation and yeah. Look for areas of agreement. Where could you say yes and to the person who is on the other side of the debate with you? Chances are there are lots of bridges. Look for those and then try to understand how you can continue to build off those as you try to have the discussion that you want. Too often we quickly entrench in our position. And the other thing that happens is we assume that the other person that we're in conflict with or negotiating with holds the positions they hold as strongly as we hold our positions. That's such a good point. You know, my wife and I do this silly thing, and I learned this from a friend. When we have a debate or a conflict, one of the first things we'll do is we'll rate how important it is to us. So let me take something very trite. Let's say we want to go out to dinner, and my wife wants to go to Italian food, and I want to go out to Mexican food. We could have a fight about it. But if my wife says, you know, Italian food for me is an eight. And I'm thinking Mexican food for me is a five. There's no debate. Yeah, great point. So we should also try to ascertain the level of importance to the person on these different issues. We assume yeah. it's the same as ours, and that's often not the case. And that opens up room for dialogue and discussion. Yeah, in a mathematical kind of engineering way. I mean, it's not quite mathematical, but whatever, it's statistical. But yeah. I would put it as putting weights on the factors. That's how I think about all things. I'm always modeling things in my head and reducing them to various factors and then just assigning yeah. them weights. I love it. I think it works really well. And it has certainly helped my marriage be successful. <laughs> well, I was actually about to say, Matt, throughout this convo, I've been thinking in the back of my head, a lot of this actually just applies to relationships, like personal relationships. I mean, that is what workplace relationships are, too, if you think about it. But for your like siblings, significant others. Oh, yeah. If I had one big takeaway, and there's many takeaways, I think what I heard kind of over and over throughout this idea that communication is about connection and finding common in communication. That's a very powerful thing to think about in a world of tech and a world where sometimes it can get a little insidery. I think that is a wonderful note to end on. Well, Sonal, thank you. It was a true pleasure. Thank you so much. And that's Matt Abrams, author of the new book, Just Out, Think Faster, Talk Smarter, How to Speak Successfully When You're Put on the Spot. Thank you again, Matt. Thank you, Sonal. Thank you for listening to Web3 with A6 and Z. You can find show notes with links to resources, books, or papers discussed, transcripts, and more at a6nzcrypto.com. This episode was produced and edited by Sonal Choksi, that's me, 
The episode was technically edited by our audio editor, Justin Golden. Credit also to Moonshot Design for the art and all thanks to support from A6NZ Crypto. To follow more of our work and get updates, resources from us and from others, be sure to subscribe to our Web3 weekly newsletter. You can find it on our website at a6nzcrypto.com. Thank you for listening and for subscribing. Let's go.